So this weekend, I'll just have you open in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we'll be this weekend, so you can turn there, head that direction, uh, and I'll just kind of uh, intro us for a minute here. And uh, as per our normal uh, arrangement with Peter, we are jumping into like the middle of a thought process. Okay, so he's been developing these range of ideas for a whole chapter and a half up to the point where we're at in chapter two. Uh, and what we need to know coming into the scripture that we're going to read today uh, is we got to remind ourselves of the purpose as to why Peter is writing in the first place. And he tells us what that is in the, in the book of Second Peter, his next letter. He says that he writes both of his letters in order to encourage the believers by reminding them what is said about them in the Old Testament and through the teachings of Jesus. He's, he's writing to encourage through a reminder. We have to keep that in mind as we come to, to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verses, we're going to walk through verses 4 through 12 today, uh, but there's one other clarifier that I want to put out there before we start, and it's this, is that this part specifically of the letter uh, from Peter is really pushed towards the church. He's addressing the church. He's addressing those of us who, who are following Jesus, who have chosen to give our allegiance to him, and so maybe you're here tonight, and you're still not sure about the Jesus thing. You, you, you've never given him your allegiance. You've never given your life to Christ. Uh, what I say to that is, one, you're welcome here, uh, but two, uh, part of this message probably isn't going to make sense to you, and that's okay, but that's simply because Peter is trying to remind those of us who, who are part of the church who we truly are. His goal is to remind us of our sense of identity. And so there is already uh, an invitation that he's given to us who, who don't know Christ yet, and it's this, is that you can have a new hope and a new identity and a new family. Uh, and he invites us into this. He says there's a, a real and a true hope that is offered through Jesus and a real and a true family that you're being invited into. And so I offer the same thing. There's a hope in Christ, and there is a family of people around you. Um, so that being said, uh, what Peter's going to walk us through as the church today is three identifiers. There are three distinct things that he's going to say that followers of Jesus are. And here's why that is so important for us to remind ourselves. I think there's a danger in our day of how we identify ourselves. Now, I'm aware that that phrase has plenty of baggage to it. Here's what I mean by that is, is when we come back to Scripture and we truly study what, what, who God says we are and who Jesus says we are, it has implications for how we're going to act and who we're going to become in our life. Uh, something that was really interesting about when I first moved to Pueblo, Colorado, I was eight years old, okay? And I moved here with my family, and we started coming from church to church to church to church, trying to find where we, where we fit, where people were going to welcome us in. Uh, and, and what happened, my parents kept getting this same question over and over again, and it was, where did you go to high school? Because that's like a Pueblo question to ask, right? That's like normal in our culture to ask that. I ask that question all the time now. That might be one of the number one questions that I get asked as a pastor is, where, where did you go to high school? That's definitely like Pueblo culture, right? And uh, my parents were like, uh, Sanger High School in Texas, right? Because that's you know, the only high school they that was in their little town growing up. Um, and so they were really confused by that, but they didn't understand that for, for Pueblo tradition and culture, man, where you went to high school is a serious identifier in your life. There, there are assumptions that we have. And here's how I know this is because many of us will carry emotion and think very deeply about it. If I were to say the phrase, uh, the bell rings red. I knew you were going to boo. I knew Will was going to boo. I knew. I knew I was going to get some boos for that. But, but I, think, I think it currently rings blue. I don't know for sure. If I'm, I'm getting a lot of head knots. Okay. <laughs> Apparently it rings blue. Maybe you carry emotion if I were to say the can of booms black or the can of booms gold. Um, I don't know what a pigskin does. Do they like make it blue or green? 
during the year. Uh, I'm referencing all of these high school rivalries that we have that are football games, but, but we, like, that has been one of the things that has been most asked of me uh, is, is, you know, once I tell somebody, like, where I graduated from high school, Centennial, class of 2016, don't tell anybody, okay? Uh, I'm sorry for those of you who are going to be upset with me, but you're actually proving my point, Okay. <laughs> is that we have assumptions based on those identifiers. And, and in many ways, where you went to high school in this town, it connects you with a network of people. It really becomes a part of who you are. And, and it's so important for us to understand this, this idea of how we're identifying ourselves and one another. And it's like I said just a moment ago, there's a spirit within the church um, of identifying others. And what's so important is that we use biblical language to do that. And, and I've had a few experiences at this point in my life uh, having to do with Christian identifiers. And what I see as a spirit in the church is one that would identify people based on denomination or a theo theological underpinning or whether somebody's Calvinist or Arminianist or old earth or young earth creationist and all of these things. And we have all of these delineations that we've begun to use for one another in the church that is not at all biblical language. And so today, what I think Peter is trying to remind the people of and ground the people in is how we talk about one another and what our true identity is as followers of Christ. Now, like I said just a minute ago, it's incredibly important that we remind ourselves who Jesus says we are because that's, that's truly what's going to impact how we change or who we become, right? And, and that's a completely logical thought until we start reading in this chapter of 1 Peter and we say, um, Peter, we're living stones, we're royal priests, and we're exiles, and so that logical thought process breaks down because we're like, what does that even mean? Okay, what does that mean? And so that's what we're going to walk through today. If you're sharp enough, just then I actually gave you all three sermon points. Uh, but we're going to walk into the first one. So uh, if you're ready, we'll go ahead and walk through 1 Peter chapter 2. Is that okay with you? Okay, then let me pray and we'll read together. Bow your heads with me this evening. Lord, we love you and we trust you. And we simply come before your word humbled that you've written to us, Lord, uh, that you desire to be known by us, that you know us, God, that you accept and love us regardless of what we've got going on in our lives. Lord, I just simply pray that you remind us through your servant Peter who we are. It is in your holy and precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So First Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 4 through 8 first. So it says this, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor that God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned, planned for them. And so the first identifier that Peter gives us here in the passage, he's going to give us two, and then we'll read a third one later on. Uh, but in verse 5, he gives disciples an identity, and he says that we are living stones. He says that we're stones, okay? And so living stones, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is a paradox because stones aren't alive. Breaking news. Who said what? Thank you. Stones are not alive, 
okay? This is a paradox. This is taking what we understand as reality and bending it in half, okay? Stones are not living. They don't move. Uh, they don't live. They don't breathe. They don't uh, recreate themselves. They're just stones. And so for us to call ourselves living stones means that there's a deeper truth here that Peter is trying to get at. He's taking these paradoxes uh, and, and trying to bend reality so we would understand a deeper point. Now, uh, if, if we're honest with ourselves... Uh, and, and if we've read the teachings of Jesus, then we're actually not really unfamiliar with paradoxes. Uh, Jesus uses them consistently in his teaching. He tells a Pharisee in John chapter 3 that he's supposed to be born again. And this Pharisee is very confused, says, do I have to go find my mom? Because that would be a really weird conversation. Okay, Je Jesus is talking about spiritual rebirth there. And, he, and there's a deeper meditation there for us when we think about being born again and becoming new creations, right? Uh, another paradox he uses is, is when he's talking to the disciples. And he says that the greatest among you is actually the servant. And the servant amongst you is the greatest, right? And, and I don't know, from our cultural standpoint, I don't know, those of us who are being served are generally kind of, you know, higher tier, so to speak, all right? Uh, being a servant isn't exactly the thing that we would desire most in life. And it brings me to my favorite paradox that Jesus teaches, that in his death, we have life. In Jesus' death, we have life. And the thing that we would sense as not victory, but actually defeat for Jesus, being killed on a cross, humiliated, is actually his victory, and it's our victory because he carries our sins to the cross and he nails them there and he leaves them there and he separates us as far as the east is from the west from it. And so if we've read God's word, we're actually not strangers at all to paradoxes, but they're there to make us think deeper. They're there to make us ask deeper questions and have deeper thoughts about what the scripture is really trying to communicate with us. And so the question is, why are disciples living stones? Not what is a living stone, but why are disciples living stones? And the simplest way that we can answer this is we are stones because Jesus was a stone. We are stones because Jesus was a stone. And if we're trying to model Christ in our lives, we're trying to be like Christ, then we are a stone in the same way that he was. Now, Jesus was a very active stone, very active stone. Psalm 118, he is the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. All right, and then in Matthew 21, Jesus uses a parable to, to come against the Pharisees, and he says that he's a stone that the Pharisees are going to trip over, and that stone is going to crush and destroy them. It's a very active stone. In Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 28, Jesus is both the stone that is a snare and a trap, and also the stone that is precious and tested and ready to be built upon. And so for us to be his disciples, it's natural that we would simply be what Jesus is. We are living stones. We are stones just as he was. But we have a different purpose. As Jesus, it says in the scripture here that he has become the cornerstone. He's become the cornerstone that we must build upon, right? And, and from there, we, as the other living stones, we are united together to make the temple. That's what the scripture, that's the image that the scripture gives us, is that we're living stones being built into a temple. And so that's really what Peter is trying to get at by calling us living stones, but by calling this out within us, by saying that we are building the temple, he's calling us into unity. Because how could a temple be built unless the stones are brought together and designed for a reason by God? He's calling us into a spirit of unity that is based on the cornerstone, which is Jesus. That's what the scripture is leading us to. That's what these ideas of paradox are, are leading us to think and consider more of, is that we're being brought into a spirit of unity. And being built into a temple 
And Jesus Church was a very important idea to Jewish, Jewish Christians at the time, and really general Christians at the time, mostly because they didn't have a temple. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have a place where they could worship. And so the only Christianity they knew was one of oppression and dispersion and separation. That's the only Christianity they knew. Okay? They didn't have a common area to come and worship together. They worshiped in people's homes and in places like that. They didn't have really cool old movie theaters like we do uh, to come and worship together. They didn't have that. But that is the very paradox that this living stone is. It's that even though we are separate, we are pulled together as one. That even though we are uh, uh, worshiping in private, it's that we're brought together as a whole. It's that even though all of these Christians, all they knew was separation, they knew that they weren't all in one place and yet they were unified. They weren't all one race and yet they were a chosen people. They were all sinful but also a chosen and a holy nation. And so Peter is pushing the church towards this unity based on what the Spirit is doing and based on nothing else, based on nothing else. Our unity has to be based on Christ. And the passage itself talks about him as the cornerstone. And the warning that I have for us today is that we have to be just as careful in our day as the Pharisees. We have to be just as careful not to reject the cornerstone. And here's what happens, is as we pursue unity, we actually begin to replace the cornerstone. And this is what I'm talking about with identifiers. We begin to make our unity based on a denominational affiliation or a theological affiliation or, or who reads the same books or who reads the same uh, version of, of translation of the Bible. And we tend to make our unity based on those things and not on Christ. And that is just as much rejecting the cornerstone as the Pharisees did when they rejected him as the Messiah. I actually have a really cool way to illustrate this, and I've been really excited to show you this because it's my science project this week. So right here, all right, you see this right here? Uh, this is called the catenary arch. Now, um, when I ordered it online, I thought it might be a little bigger, but you can see that, right? Can you also see that it's a little bit crooked? I'll just, I'll just be, I'll tell on myself a little bit here. Some of these blocks may be in the wrong spot. I'll just be honest as I was building it, but that won't, it won't ruin the illustration. Okay, here's, here's, this is a catenary arch, and it's actually one of the greatest, um, it was one of the greatest ways to build something in the ancient days. This, this is a really old design, uh, and it was used for a lot of different things, mostly bridges in the old days, but, but there are huge structures that use the catenary arch because it so effectively and efficiently carries weight larger than its own. So like the Eiffel Tower uses catenary arches, okay? The Empire State Building uses these types of arches, right? And so what happens is um, it, it's, it's really helpful because it disperses the weight along the blocks of the angle, right? So not all the weight on the, is on the bottom here, but the weight that it carries is actually dispersed across the entire spot, okay? It's dispersed all the way across the arch. And so that makes this middle stone, it's called the keystone, the most important stone on here because it helps to disperse all that weight and gravity all across the arch. Now, if you can't guess where I'm going with this, you're about to see, okay? <laughs> this middle stone is obviously the most important because it, it, it disperses all of the weight, right? And so if we were to take the middle stone, uh, the, the, the arch wouldn't work, right? And so that's the idea, is that, that this middle stone or wood block uh, that doesn't fit correctly, this part is the most important part, okay? And it's not the largest part. It doesn't have the deepest angles cut into it, but it is the most necessary. 
It is the most necessary for building the arch and for doing this the right way. And so here's what I'm trying to say is that I believe the spiritual unity of the church is a catenary arch. I believe the spiritual unity of the church is made to carry a weight much larger than its own. I believe it's made to carry the weight of the world in many senses, that we're supposed to stand in the gap for the world. And I believe when we build our arches and we place something else in the middle that isn't Christ, we will never bear that weight. When we place something in the middle that is a theological standpoint or a certain biblical translation or a super specific denomination or anything like that, then we reject the stone that the builder, we reject the same stone that the builders rejected. We must be just as careful in our day to keep Jesus as the keystone, as the capstone, the cornerstone that Peter is talking about, because only that way can we represent the temple in the way that God is building us to do so. So this first identity is one of, of the temple. It's related to the temple that Peter explains to us. And the second identifier is in the same verse. And so Peter leads us into this understanding that we are built as living stones into the temple. And then he also says that we're the royal priests who belong inside of that temple. And so we're both of these Old Testament images put together. We're both the living stones and the royal priests. So let me read 2 Peter verse, oh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and that'll give us some more context. It says this, but you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. And so Peter refers to us as the temple and also the priests. And we're the royal priests because Jesus is the high priest. I would love to nerd out about Jesus being the high priest, but I'm actually just going to give you some homework. Go read Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, and that will hash out fully why Jesus is the high priest and why, he was, why he's the messenger, but also the message of the gospel, okay? But we're priests because Jesus is a priest, okay? Now, I'm, I'm aware that in cultural traditions uh, and in many different uh, denominations and things like that, we have very specific ideas for what a priest is. And so I am not trying to offend your sensibilities. Uh, but but here's, here's what the scripture calls us, is priests. Okay, that, that's not something that I've named us. That's something that scripture has named us. All of us who would follow Christ are priests. So here's, here's how we're going to explain this is, is by duties and roles. So what were the duties and roles of priests in Jesus and Peter's day? Okay, they had two really main roles and all the other things kind of came out of that. One was to offer sacrifices for the people. Okay, so they were the ones slaughtering animals and bringing them to the altar and all the things like that in and out of the temple. Okay, that was their first role. And the second role was to mediate the relationship between God and the people and the people and God. They were like the mediator. They were the middle spot there. They were the middle man, so to speak. And in many ways, priests today do a lot of the same types of things. It's very similar in role. But, but what the Bible calls of us is to be priests, and so we actually have the same roles and duties. And this is where I've been going with this idea that the way that we identify ourselves leads us into action. It leads us into who we are becoming. And if we are the royal priests that God is calling us to be, then that means we have two roles, to offer sacrifices and to be mediators between God and humanity. And now I talked about this for just a moment in the word of encouragement a few minutes ago, uh, how, how uh, we don't offer the same sacrifices as before, okay? I've never had somebody slaughter an animal for me, okay? I don't know if you have. Uh, man, that's a story I'd like to hear, if I'm honest. Uh, but, 
But generally now we don't see priests slaughtering animals. Our, our sacrifices are spiritual sacrifices. That's what verse 5 teaches us, is that we offer spiritual sacrifices that are given through Jesus himself. And that's why they're acceptable to the Lord. And so our spiritual sacrifices are defined in many places in scripture. In Romans 12, it talks about how our bodies, we offer our bodies as a spiritual sacrifice before the Lord. We offer ourselves up to him. Hebrews chapter 13 talks about the worship and the praise of our lips and the good deeds that we do for one another. These are forms of spiritual worship to the Lord. Philippians 4 talks about the money that we give and the material that we share with one another, our spiritual sacrifices. That's what the Lord is calling us into, to give up spiritual sacrifices for one another. And the second idea, that we're mediators between God and the world, God and humanity. And here's the idea behind that, is that the church, we, these people in the room here, those of us who have chosen to follow Christ and be his disciples, uh, that is God's active way of being a part of humanity. Okay, so when, when I come up here and I talk about giving and I say that, that you giving is another form of worship and that it's you joining with what God is doing in our community, that's not because Fellowship of the Rockies is God. That's not because we speak for God. That's because God uses the church to insert himself into human history, to insert himself into our communities. God uses the church to do that. Um, one of my dear friends and my mentor, okay, he, his like thing is, is street side evangelism and he's got a talent like just about no one else I've ever met in my life. And so what, he, what his, what, what his like process is, what he does, is he gives everybody a Bible, and most of the time he gives them a McDonald's gift card or a gas card. That's kind of his thing. And they're always like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just appreciate you so much for this. And, and, and what he says to them is, this is not from me. This is from Jesus. This is from Jesus. And we might think that that's like a spiritualized way of looking at the world, but it's, it's, it's the best way to look at the world because that is God bringing his active rule and reign, his kingdom among us, is by using the church to bless other people. And that's this idea of election, is that we are elected to be a blessing. That's what the church is. It is elected to be a blessing to the world. We are the middleman between God and humanity. We are God. Uh, we, we are the mediators of, of God wanting to become involved with the world and in our community. And that's, that's a beautiful truth that we're called into because Jesus calls us his priests, because we're called out as, as not just the living stones of the temple, but also as the priests in that temple. And so those are two really deep Old Testament images that Peter is using right here, the image of the temple and the image of the priest. And then he takes another very, very famous um, a very famous image uh, in the Old Testament is that of being the exile. Uh, this is something deep in Jewish history, but it's the third identifier that he gives for those of us who follow Christ is that we are exiles. And so let me read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll read verses 10 through 12 for us. It says this, Once you had no identity as a people, and now you are God's people. Once you had received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. And dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And so Peter takes these three images, that of the temple, the priest, and now the exile. And he takes these ideas and he applies them all to the disciples who would follow Jesus. 
Okay, so, so for us today, uh, this, the idea of being an exile or a foreigner isn't altogether the same. So, so I'm actually going to give us a definition really briefly of what an exile is. An exile is someone who is simply forced out of their home country and is now living somewhere else. Now, when I, when I say or when Peter says that we're exiles, that we're foreigners in a land, uh, that's, I'm, I'm not talking about like we're, we're, we're missing our citizenship here, okay? Um, this isn't about having an ID card, okay? I'm an American citizen. I have it in my wallet, uh, you know, backstage or wherever my wallet's at. <laughs> we have IDs. This isn't about uh, uh, not being uh, identified as, as an American or something like that. But what it is about is it, it's, it's about culture, Right? It's, it's about being spiritual exiles. We, we no longer belong here. If we know Christ, if we follow Christ, and our home is at his side, and that's wherever he would be. Our home is no longer here. Our citizenship is no longer here. What the Apostle Paul says is that we're now citizens of heaven, and that makes us exiles here on earth. It makes us exiles here. We exist separate from the world because of the identities we've taken on in Christ. And sometimes that's not altogether apparent. Being in exile isn't always a, 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 a huge difference between us and the world. Sometimes it's just simply the way we choose to talk to one another. Sometimes it is simply about what movements we will or won't support. Okay, sometimes it is just simply about the rhythms that we put into our life, like having a Sabbath day or, or fasting, praying, reading of the Bible. Okay, these are all uh, rhythms of our lives that a lot of people may not understand, but it's, this is a result of us being exiles. And we're exiles because we have inwardly taken on these identities as, as the spiritual stones being built into the temple and as the royal priests. That's where it leaves us is as exiles in this world. Okay, the, uh, a really good example I have for this is actually, oh, it's right here. It's in my pocket. It's these blue light rectangles, okay? These blue light rectangles are a really good uh, I, uh, way to shape whether or not we're exiles or not. And here's why. It's because these rectangles of information are, are truly the way that human beings shape their souls. This is truly who we decide to be. It's an extension of ourself. It's a third hand. It's, it's an extension of our minds. Uh, and it's where we get our entertainment. It's generally where we get our news. It's generally where most people would receive their truth. Okay, I read a book this last year um, called uh, Faith for Exiles, and it was talking about this digital Babylon that we live in. And uh, it's written by people at the Barna Group, and they're a group that, that uh, studies Christians and Christian movements and things like that. And the book was written by a guy named Dave Kenneman, and I can't remember the other guy. I'm sure he'll forgive me because he doesn't know who I am. So... Uh, <laughs> But this book talked about this digital exile that we live in, that, that if we don't submit to technology in certain senses, okay, if we don't submit to technology, then we are automatically going to be very different from the people around us. That is a very easy way to see the exile that we have as Christians, and here's why, because we have decided not to shape our souls with this. What we've actually chosen is to take uh, uh, Jewish writings from 2,000-ish years ago, and we're going to allow the God of the Jewish people who has died for our sins and reached out towards us as Gentiles, people who are not of the quote-unquote chosen nation, we're going to choose to allow that to shape who we are, to shape our souls, to shape our perspectives. That makes us exiles. That makes us not belong here. In fact, in many ways, it, it may make us weird to those around us that we would choose to follow a Jewish man who's born and, and lived and died 2,000 years ago the only problem with that story is that we also believe that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven, that he's alive now, that he's active 
now in our lives, in our homes, in our hearts. And the, way we, the reason we get there is because of these identifiers. See, see if, if we are stuck in, this, in this, uh, this thought process of making our identifiers a theological thought process or, or a, don, a denominational affiliation or, or anything like that, if, if, if that's how we're going to shape our worldview, it's not going to lead us to truth. It's not going to lead us to truth. The only way that, that we're led to truth is by keeping this as the keystone. Not just this, but Jesus himself as this. Jesus himself as the keystone. Jesus himself is that which we can build on, the rock that is our foundation. And I think that there's been, there's been a danger for us, especially recently, and maybe I say recently, it may just be as I've grown up, I've noticed it more. That might be what it is. I think recently is kind of a, a strange term for me, but uh, what, what I've noticed is that, that there is a heart and a spirit in the church that we are so much more willing to identify one another and other groups of Christians and other groups of people based on things that are not scriptural, based on things that were not given to us in the word. And I think that's part of what Peter is calling us into, that there is a unity in the spirit that he is calling us into. The spirit is changing us, showing us how to be priests to bring our spiritual offerings, to be formed into the temple of our Lord. And that's the call for us today, to not replace any other thing in the keystone of our spiritual unity other than Jesus himself. And there's no greater truth that I can share with you this weekend. I'll have you bow your heads with me and close your eyes.